Good morning and welcome to Hydrant Church. We are so glad that you have joined us as we begin this brand new series of messages today about women in the Bible. Now, we can look at ancient history, all throughout history, right up to our own time, and see so many different ways that women are objectified. We can see how their voices are diminished, their opportunities and their influence minimized whenever possible. Unfortunately, that has often found its way into the church as well. There are those who take a few lines written by the Apostle Paul and they lift them out of a letter to a particular church going through a particular situation and they use those in contrast to the whole movement of Scripture, to the ways that God calls and uses and empowers women all throughout the Bible. If we look into Scripture, we can go all the way back to the book of Judges. Even before there was ever a king in Israel, one of the judges selected by God to lead his people was Deborah. And it wasn't because there weren't capable men, it's because he chose her. If we keep moving throughout the scriptures, there are dozens and dozens of these stories. Another one is Huldah. In 2 Kings chapter 22, they are in the midst of a renewal among the people of God. And there are many well-known, um, well-known prophets around at this time. But Huldah, the prophetess, is chosen to help lead the renewal. We can keep going and see that Jesus chooses Mary Magdalene to be the first one to witness to his very resurrection, the first person to ever preach the resurrection, the first one to ever spread the good news that Jesus is alive was Mary Magdalene. Paul himself, the apostle whose words are often contorted and misused and misunderstood to relegate women to the sidelines or the background, chose Phoebe as a deacon and Priscilla as the lead teacher in Corinth. Over and over again throughout the history of Scripture, there are times and places where God raises up women to lead, to speak his word, to speak on his behalf. In fact, we see it in Acts chapter 2. As the Spirit comes on the church, they remember the words of the prophet Joel, who says that God will pour out his Spirit on men and women and boys and girls, and your men and your women will prophesy, or they will speak on God's behalf. So during this series, we're going to be looking at a few of the women of God and the influence and the things that we can learn from them. And with the exclusion of today, these messages are going to be shared by women of God who are a part of our faith community here at Hydrant Church. They are a part of our leadership team here at Hydrant Church, and they are going to be sharing how God has impacted them and the stories of the women of the Bible and what we can learn from those stories today. The messages that need to continue to be told, the, the women, the girls that need to be continued to be lifted up as models of faith and leadership 
for the next generation. So today, I want to take us and begin this first story. I want to take us to, a, to an ancient book in the Old Testament. It's a unique book. It's a little unusual. It has the story of one extraordinary woman. The book of Esther sits in the Old Testament between Nehemiah and Job. It's the story of a group of Jewish exiles in the Persian capital of Susa. Now, there are four main characters in this story that is the entire book of Esther. The first is the king, Xerxes. He's a, a bit of a lush. He gets drunk. He's drinking all the time, having feasts and banquets. The story begins with this massive, months-long celebration of his glory and his wealth. But he's, strangely enough, for Persian king, a pushover, easily influenced by others, for good or bad. He's a bit narcissistic and insecure. And then we meet a man named Mordecai. Mordecai is a leader among the Jewish people. He is um, a bit stubborn and obstinate. He has a little bit of a, a chip on his shoulder, but he's known as someone with a deep faith in God. He has a conviction that is unwavering about God's ability and willingness to keep his promises, even in times when it feels like God is nowhere around, even in exile. Now, then there's Esther herself, the one the book is named after. Esther is the niece of Mordecai, a beautiful young woman who has entered into a year-long beauty pageant and wins and is made queen of Persia while also hiding the fact that she's Jewish. And then we meet Haman. Haman is our antagonist. He's got um, a need for glory, a need for power, a need for influence. We're told that he's an Agagite or a Canaanite. He was one of the ones whose ancestors were run out of the promised land by Israel. And so he hates the Jewish people in Susa. But even more, he hates Mordecai. Now, it probably goes to the fact that there was this day when Haman was raised up as this really important noble, and the king declared that everyone should bow their knee to Haman. And Mordecai, remember, chip on his shoulder, Mordecai, refused to bow down. And that got under Haman's skin more than anything else. But as we look at this story, there is one character that is conspicuously missing from the story. And in a lot of stories, we wouldn't notice. But this being a story out of Scripture, a story out of the Bible, it's odd that not once is God mentioned in this book. Not once does God speak. He doesn't speak to Mordecai. He doesn't speak to the king. He doesn't speak to Esther. He seems to be missing. He's just not there. And, and it starts to trigger a question. How do we act 
What do we do when it feels like God is absent? Can we trust his promises when it feels like we've been led into exile? Can we trust that God will be faithful when we've been unfaithful? Can we trust that something's happening even if it appears like God is nowhere around? So let's jump into the story. It begins with Xerxes in this massive months-long party. And by the end, he's drunk and it comes to the last day and he wants to show off his wife. Except his wife has been having a party of her own with the women, uh, the noble women of the kingdom. And she doesn't want to be arm candy. She doesn't want to be paraded out like another possession. And so when the king summons her, she refuses to go. He goes into a drunken rage and removes her as queen and sends out this kind of ridiculous decree that every man should be the master of his own house because the noble women, having seen the queen deny the instructions of the king, are worried that all the wives of the community, all the wives of the country will rise up and they need to find a way to push them back down. But now Xerxes needs a queen. He's given an idea. He said, why do they came to him, his, his noblemen, his advisors said, why don't you hold a pageant? Why don't you hold a contest? And we'll gather all of the most beautiful women from all of the provinces over which you rule. And we'll, we'll put them through beauty treatments and we'll have the eunuchs take care of them and, and they will come to you one at a time and spend time with you until you find the most beautiful, the one that pleases you most, and she will become your new wife, your new queen. <laughs> I guess this is kind of the first love, marriage, reality, TV show type thing in history. This absurd kind of contest that lasted over a year. But as it shakes out, Esther, the young Jewish woman from Susa, is chosen. She has a soothing voice and is beautiful and pleased the king. And she's chosen as the new queen. Just so happens. Now, the ancient Jewish readers, having heard this story and reading this story, would have instantly said, mm, I think God did that. Of course she won. She's one of us. God is, God is doing something. Of course he's going to raise up one of us. And then there's Mordecai. It just so happens that he's in the right place at the right time. We find it in Esther chapter 2, beginning at verse 21. It says this, during that time, that's right after, now right after Esther has been made queen, it says that Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's officers who guarded the doorway, became angry and they conspired to assassinate King Xerxes. But Mordecai happened over here. He happened to find out about it. And he told Queen Esther, who in turn reported this news to the king, giving credit to Mordecai. 
And when the report was investigated and found to be true, two of the officials were impaled on poles. (laughs) All this was recorded in the book of Annals in the presence of the king. So it was all recorded and they took note of Mordecai having uncovered the plot that saved the king. Now the story just kind of jumps in chapter 3, just after this. King Xerxes honored Haman. Haman. He honors Haman and he raises him up to the top noble position. And he is given a special ring and everyone is supposed to bow. But Mordecai refuses. And Haman hates him for it. Hates him for it. Not only does he hate Mordecai, but he hates all of the Jewish people. And he comes up with a plan. Remember how influenced Xerxes is? Haman has a plan. And he he decides that he's going to come up with a plot. And he's going to convince the king to write a decree to eliminate the Jewish people from all over the kingdom. Now, they're not really sure when to do this, so they roll a dice, a purr, to choose the day. They roll this dice, and it lands on the 13th of this particular month. And so they go to the king, and they say, listen, you have people in your kingdom who hate you, who who don't follow our laws, they don't have our religious beliefs, they don't fit in, we need to get rid of them. So here's what we're thinking. Let's write a decree that on the 13th, we'll all go and kill the Jews. We'll go wherever they are. You are allowed to attack and kill and take whatever is theirs. And the king, for some reason, thinks this is a good idea. I guess when you're a little insecure, when you're a little easily influenced, it doesn't have it doesn't take much to convince you that there's a threat against you. And so he agrees. He gives them his ring. The plot is completed. The decree is written in all the languages of the kingdom and sent out. And the Jews begin to mourn. They begin to wail. They begin to fast. They don't know what to do. And Mordecai is found fasting in sackcloth and ashes outside of the palace. And word is sent from Esther to him. Listen, you got to stop this. You know no one is allowed to be mourning and grieving in the presence of the king anywhere near the palace. You can't do this. You have to stop. And he sends back word about what has happened. And he warns her, there's not anything that you're going to be able to do to escape. We find this part of the story. It's kind of this significant moment in in chapter 4 of Esther. It begins at verse 1. It says, when Mordecai learned of all that had been done, he tore his clothes and he put on sackcloth and ashes. And he went out into the city, wailing loudly and bitterly. But he went only as far as the king's gate, because no one was allowed in sackcloth to enter in. In every province to which the edict and the order of the king came, there was great mourning among the Jews, with fasting, weeping, and wailing. Many lay in sackcloth and ashes. Now when Esther's eunuchs and female attendants came and told her about Mordecai, she was in great distress. She sent clothes for him to put on instead of his mourning clothes, and and he wouldn't accept them. Then Esther summoned Hathak, one of the, the king's eunuchs, assigned to her. 
and ordered him to find out what was troubling Mordecai. So he went and talked to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate. Mordecai told him everything that had happened to him, including the exact amount of money that Haman had promised to pay into the royal treasury for the destruction of the Jews. He also gave him a copy of the text of the edict for their annihilation, which had been published in Susa. It was to show Esther and explain it to her. And he told him to instruct her to go into the king's presence to beg for mercy and to plead with him for her people. When he reported back to Esther, she instructed him to report back to Mordecai. Listen, all the king's officials and the people of the royal provinces know that for any man or woman who approached the king in the inner court without being summoned, the king has but one law, that they be put to death unless he extends the gold scepter to them and spares their lives. But for 30 days have passed since I was called to go to the king. So here we have Esther and Mordecai. Mordecai is grieving and he shares this report of the annihilation of the Jews with her. And she feels powerless. All her life she's been objectified, chosen for her beauty. She feels powerless. Even if she were to, to go to the king, even if she were to try to speak to him, if he, for whatever reason, decides that he doesn't want to talk to her, it could cost her her life. She has no influence in her mind. She has no power in her mind. And in fact, it feels like God isn't there. They're in exile. He abandoned them. He left them. And now they have to figure this out. But Mordecai, Mordecai wasn't buying it. He didn't believe what the world said about Esther. He didn't believe what the world said about their God being defeated by the God of the Persians. And he says to her, Don't think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. But you and your father's family will perish. And then he says something really interesting. And who knows? And who knows? But that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. Mordecai is convinced that no matter what happens, no matter what Esther does, that God will provide for his people. He will open up a door. But he says... Who knows? We can't really always be sure of what God is asking us to do. Can I be honest? I don't know that I've ever been 100% sure that God was asking me to do something until afterwards. Really, we all have to kind of find that risk factor. How sure do I need to feel? How confident do I need to feel? How in line with Scripture is this? How much is this connected to the truth of what I know about God? And I need to act. There comes a point when we say, who knows? Who knows? Maybe this is why I'm here. Who knows? Maybe this is my purpose. Who knows? Maybe this is why I'm in this place right now. 
I feel powerless. God feels absent. I feel like I have been minimized and I have been objectified and I have been pushed aside. But God seems to have put me in a place with an opportunity. But this opportunity comes with a lot of risk. The story starts to take a pivot and it's almost humorous, really. You see, Haman goes home after Mordecai refuses to bow down and he's furious. And his friends just say, well, listen, just ask the king. He'll let you kill him early. And so they erect this massive pole with a sharp end, basically a huge, sharp stick in the ground that goes up several dozen feet. And their plan is to impale Mordecai on this pole. And the next morning, Haman wakes up and he has breakfast and he's ready and he's excited and he's headed to the king. And he's going to ask for permission to kill Mordecai. And the king speaks before Haman can ever speak. Because the night before, because he couldn't sleep, the king had those annals read to him. And he heard again the story of Mordecai and he asked, did we do anything to reward Mordecai? His servant said, no, we didn't. So still on his mind the next morning, his nobleman walks in and he says to him, if the king wanted to honor someone, what should he do? And Haman kind of looks around and he thinks, I'm the only one here. He must want to honor me. And he comes up with this exorbitant thing. I would, I would give him one of your robes that you've worn, king. And I would wear, put one of your rings on his finger. And I would allow him to ride on one of your horses. One that you've ridden before. And I would have the most important person you can think of walk him all through Susa proclaiming, this is what the king does for someone he wants to honor. Oh, and the king loves it. He says, that's a great idea, Haman. You go do all of that for Mordecai. And he is crushed. He's crushed in that moment. And there's this, this huge twist that he's ready to come in and ask to kill Mordecai. And is humiliated by now having to proclaim Mordecai's honor. And his fury burns even more. And it's this first kind of moment where we see pride go before a fall. One of these ironic reversals that those early readers would have seen as a moment of God intervening on behalf of his people. As the story keeps unfolding, something remarkable happens. Esther, Esther builds up her courage and she approaches the king. He's delighted to see her. And again, all of the Jewish readers said, of course he's delighted to see her. And he brings her in and she says, I have a request. Just anything you want up to half my kingdom. And she says, just you and, you, you and Haman, come have dinner with me. Let, me. let me have a banquet just for you. And they come and they eat and he, she throws another banquet. Instead of telling him what she wants, she just asks for him to come back the next night. And as he comes back the next night and they sit down to dinner, she says, okay, this is two nights. 
tell me, what is it you want, my queen? You can have anything in all the kingdom you want. Hmm. And she says, there's one who has plotted to kill me and all of my people. The king is furious. Who has done this? <laughs> and she points at Haman. And the king is, has been drinking and he gets up in a rage, furious about what has happened. And he walks out of the room and as he walks back, Haman is on his knees begging Esther for mercy, begging Esther for grace. <laughs> but the king in his rage doesn't see a man begging. He sees a man making a move on his wife who has just threatened to kill her and to betray his kingdom. And he has Haman impaled on the very pole that he had installed to kill Mordecai. They're not able to reverse a decree of the king, but something began to happen in that moment. Mordecai was raised up into Haman's position. Esther and Mordecai write a new decree allowing God's people to protect themselves. And in that day, because of the courage and the leadership and the bravery and the influence of a woman, God protected his people. God saved the people of God. And even today, even today, every year, God's people stop and they celebrate Esther with the feast of Purim. In this feast, they remember Esther. They read the story of Esther. They tell the story of Esther and they remember how God used Esther to save all of their people in Persia. Now there are so many, so many things we can learn from this story. So many things that we can see. We can see the truth of James chapter 4 verse 6. That God opposes the proud. Mm but shows favor to the humble. This is always a good lesson for us to remember. It matters. You know, right now, maybe thinking, well, I'm not very proud. I'm not like Haman. But I think pride sometimes simply sounds like, God, thank you that I'm not like them. God, thank you that I'm not like them. God, thank you I'm not like all of these people who just don't get it we can also see God's fondness for using the powerless the objectified the marginalized to do significant things it says in the new testament that he chooses the unwise to shame the wise he uses the weak to shame the strong that God has a tendency to raise up whomever he chooses and he may be putting us in a situation just for that moment and we don't get to decide whether we're powerless or not. We don't get to, to, to let go of our faith because it feels like we've been abandoned. We choose to believe over and over again that God is with us, that God is working, and that he is always faithful to his promises. And we simply do whatever he asks us to do. There may even be times when all we have is a, who knows? Perhaps. I think this is what God is asking me to do. This is the most loving thing that I can imagine. 
life right now may feel a little uncertain. It may feel a bit ambiguous. May f- you may feel powerless or like God is absent in this great big story. You, you may not know for sure what to do or how to act. But I think we can learn from Esther. We can learn to have courage in times of uncertainty. We can learn to have faith that God is always faithful to his promises. We can learn to believe that God is at work behind the scenes, even when we don't hear him or see him in the way we want to. And maybe we don't have to believe that every coincidence and every ironic twist is God manipulating things behind the scene. But we have to believe that God is at work, that he's never betrayed us, he's never forsaken us, he's never left us alone, that his grace goes before, beside, all around, and with us in every moment. We can believe the truth of Joshua 1.9. Be strong and courageous. Don't be afraid or discouraged because the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Let's pray. Father, in these moments, would we hear your encouragement, your hope and your strength Would we look to Esther as a model of courage and uncertainty in faith when it's ambiguous and the ability to choose to act in spite of our fear, to know that you are with us in everything. Your purposes won't be thwarted or undone. So we trust you. We ask for your help in these moments to know when and how to act to act with courage, to act with hope, to act in love. And would you be glorified by the work of your people. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for tuning in this weekend to worship. We realize now more than ever how important it is for us to stay connected. So I want to encourage you to text in to 919-888-4401. And you can join us in supporting what's happening here at Hydrant and in our community. We've made it really easy for you to set up automated giving on our app and on our website. Know that you are loved. Have a great week.